Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, the first anniversary of the war between Russia and Ukraine has come and gone. With it, there were tens of thousands of words written about how the Ukrainians have survived the Russian invasion. And with more money and tanks on their way from the United States, the European Union and the Scandinavian countries, how Ukraine cannot now lose the war. Wars, of course, are times when propaganda is in its element. On the Russian side, there's been more than enough propagandising about the capacity to win the battle. But are either side right? Can this war end in a victory for either side? And how has the news media dealt with the nuance? Joining us today to talk about this is freelance journalist and former BBC reporter Leonid Rogozin, who keeps a very close watch on the information channels which have been used by propagandists on both sides. Rogozin is Russian, but since the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, he's lived outside his country in Latvia. So, Leonid, thank you very, very much for joining us here on Fourth Estate. The last time that you were on this program, the war was just two weeks old, and at the time you viewed it as an irrational move by Putin, a man that you viewed as a gangster and in charge of a gangster state. Since then, of course, Ukraine has reversed Russia's main advance, resulting in in Putin calling a partial mobilisation, calling up hundreds of thousands of troops to stabilise the war. How do you now view this war some 50 weeks down the track? Well, right. Uh, it has been a year uh, since since Putin started his uh, aggression against Ukraine, the, the full out aggression, as opposed to um, to the first stage of the war in which um, Russia occupied Crimea and started uh, a smaller scale uh, conflict in the east of Ukraine. Uh, we uh, we saw largest uh, um, military conflict uh, in the European history. Uh, since probably um, uh, the World War II, I'm not sure how it compares to to the Yugoslav Wars, but it's, uh, at least in geographical terms, it's uh, it's a war on a on a larger uh, scale. It seems more uh, consequential. It does, yeah, definitely, absolutely, uh, and. Um, uh, after 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 a year of war. Uh, it only feels that uh, the uh, the two sides uh, have uh, have more appetite for for more war, and uh, the um, escalation has been uh, going on throughout the war, uh, throughout throughout the hostilities in the um, uh, in 2022, uh, with um, uh, Russians with the Russians first uh, advancing. 
uh, on the south of Ukraine, on Kiev, and uh, then uh, the Ukrainians uh, managed to, um, uh, to 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 launch a counteroffensive and uh, regain more more territory, uh, but. Um, uh, the the Russians started the operation uh, as uh, um, as almost a, uh, an anti an anti riot a police operation when they uh, um, when they launched uh, the attack on on Kiev and uh, send send their troops they they didn't form a front line they just uh, uh, sent one column that. Uh, um, there was eventually got stuck on the road and the, the column was so uh, 100 kilometers long uh they didn't really expect it to turn into a, a proper war with the front lines uh, but uh, obviously the ukrainians uh, uh, have uh, managed to uh to um mount uh, resistance and uh, and eventually uh, what we're seeing now is uh, uh, something more akin to to the uh, to world wars in Europe, with uh, uh, a front line that stretches for hundreds and hundreds of uh, kilometers uh, from the uh, sea of, uh, from the Sea of Azov, from the Black Sea, actually, in Kherson mm-hmm. region, uh, to uh, to Kharkov region in the north. Uh, it's still possible that the Russians might launch new offensives. In uh, out of uh, Belarus or out of um, uh, Kursk uh, and uh, um, and uh, Bryansk regions in, in uh, which which border the northern Ukraine. Um, so yes, a huge war, and uh, uh, the the year ahead, uh, we we're seeing uh, the Western allies of Ukraine supplying. Uh, more um, armed vehicles and more sophisticated weapons to Ukraine. There is now talk about um, supplying Ukraine with uh, um, sophisticated modern uh, fighter jets. Uh, and um, do you from... think that will, do you think that will happen, Leader? Because it's highly contested, and the United States is is very much holding out on that front, holding out on promising those fighter jets. Do you believe that will happen? Well, uh, I think the uh, the latest statement by Jake um, Sullivan uh, was to the effect that uh, um, it's it's just not the right time to talk about it. Uh, but uh, the the hint uh, uh, was that uh, uh, the, the the time will eventually come for the United States to uh, unfreeze uh, um, unfreeze this item. And and allow and allow the the uh, and allow the Ukrainians to uh, to receive fighter jets, but uh, that may come at a, at a different stage in the battle. Yeah, so it, I mean, it does. It, it certainly looks at this point as though it's going to be a, a long war of attrition on the battlefield. But but still, you know, you've got many many people within the Western commentariat and indeed in the U.S. government who predict a decisive victory for Ukraine. Now, I mean, obviously propaganda plays its part, but how on the mark do you think that assessment is, that Ukraine has an ability and a capacity to actually outright win this war on the battlefield? 
uh, yes, the, the discourse of uh, Ukraine's victory, and uh, and by victory we mean uh, uh, Ukraine liberating uh, all the lands currently occupied by Russia in the east and south of the country, including Crimea, the peninsula which uh, Russia occupied, uh, occupied uh, back in 2014. Uh, so I think for Ukraine, uh, for, for the Ukrainian leadership, it is important to uh, talk about full liberation because uh, that's that's their way to uh, mobilize support in the West and that's their way of projecting uh, confidence. Uh, and uh, for, um, for the so-called friends of Ukraine in the West and uh, in particular in Eastern Europe, uh, it is the same. It is about uh, um, selling this, this idea to the uh, uh, broad public that, that Ukraine can actually win. And therefore, it does make sense to uh, supply it with uh, all the um, uh, possible uh, weapons. Uh, including uh, the uh, the tanks, the sophisticated modern tanks that are now being supplied, and uh, uh, the anti aircraft um, facilities that are also being supplied. Then the next stage that is being discussed now is the is the fighter jets. Mm. Um, whether that is attainable, that's that's another question, and um, what what we uh, what we see on the front line now is that. Uh, Russia, the Russian forces are making slow advances. They are very close to capturing Bakhmut in a, in a major battle of this uh, winter. Um, there is talk about the Ukrainians preparing a counteroffensive sometime uh, this spring. Uh, whether it will materialize, whether they will be able to break through the Russian defenses, uh, which are now proper defenses. Russia is prepared to this uh, counteroffensive. Um, that's that's extremely uh, that's extremely unclear. And of course, the people are also talking about uh, the, the the Russian offensive, which uh, has either started already, as the Ukrainians claim, uh, or is it uh, or it is yet to to begin? Uh, because we know very little really about the. Uh, the reserves that Russia has accumulated since it started um, a, a mobilization in uh, in the fall uh, last year, and uh, uh, how how many of these uh, three hundred thousand people uh, are already on the front line, and how many of them are still in the reserves, waiting for for their time, wait, waiting for a major offensive. That that we don't know. What we can say very confidently is that we will see a carnage on a on a much greater scale uh, this year than than we saw last year at mm. least from from judging by this talk about uh, offensives and, and counteroffensives lena one of the things i think that's been less reported particularly in the last few weeks is um a, a move from President Macron of France, and aligning with Germany at least on this issue, expressing some doubt about Ukraine's ability to win the war. In fact, Macron has told President Zelensky, according to some reports, to settle the war, begin negotiations, and in exchange, 
what you what Ukraine will receive is um, a, a push through on some security arrangement with NATO, which might fall short of full membership, but at least guarantee Ukraine some short term safety. I wanted to ask you firstly, why you think that's received so little attention in Western media circles? And secondly, what, what chance you think there is that Ukraine will heed Macron's advice? Uh, well, the, uh, the the way the uh, discourse uh, uh, regarding the war in Ukraine is being uh, shaped in the West, um, that requires a very, um, uh, a very thorough analysis, which, uh, which I guess some people are doing already, but uh, uh, in future historians uh, of particularly of uh, mass media mm. uh, will have uh, laws and laws of work to, to, to do uh, in, in that respect. Um, uh, but what, what we have is uh, a specific uh, lobbyist groups uh, that uh, promotes the idea of Ukraine uh, completely defeating Russia uh, and uh, liberating uh, all of its territory. Well, these lobbyist groups, they uh, control the information space. Uh, and the um, situation is, is quite unique in the sense that, uh, uh, as you rightly said, uh, such important voices as um, Macron's or uh, voices uh, coming from Germany um, are essentially not being heard in the uh, in the English language uh, discourse, which is uh, which is not reduced to English speaking countries. It is it is the uh, the main platform, the main uh, uh, the, the main language in which uh, the whole world is uh, discussing the the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, largely because. Uh, uh, most people are now uh, getting the information from uh, social networks, from platforms like uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook. Uh, and on these platforms, particularly on Twitter, it is the uh, lobbyist groups uh, which maintain uh, uh, troll farms and bot farms. Uh, these groups are uh, essentially controlling the discourse. And so that's why we... Uh, really hear uh, a lot of talk uh, which may or may not be substantiated uh, about Ukraine winning the war. And uh, when we hear the voices uh, like Macron, so uh, like um, some of the um, even American pundits, uh, pundits from Iran Corporation, for example, uh, who doubt the ability of Ukraine to win this war completely and who, who say that it will end with negotiations. But uh, these voices are, are being uh, suppressed and they're being suppressed by um, by those boat farms and uh, troll farms that are being maintained by uh, by partisan groups uh, interested in, in a military solution in Ukraine. And has has the the policy decisions by some of the platforms, the digital platforms, and indeed by some um, Western governments to suppress uh, Russian argument, Russian voices on this issue, is that also playing a role? Uh, well, that's that's how they frame it. Uh, they uh, they say that they are fighting Russian propaganda, uh, but uh, their definition of Russian propaganda is now extremely broad. And uh, who they are suppressing in effect at the moment 
it's not really Russian propaganda. Um, they are suppressing uh, moderate voices uh, in the in the West primarily, uh, who are expressing doubt about uh, and that's reasonable doubt about the Ukraine about Ukraine's ability to uh, to win this war to end this war without um, uh, setting parts of its uh, territory to Russia uh, but also about the human cost of this war the human cost of uh, uh, endlessly pursuing uh, um, full victory to Ukraine uh, so and, and what's uh, and, what, and what's the cost of that? I mean, what is the what is the the net result of of uh, of that stand? Uh, well, we uh, uh, neither side is uh, giving us true figures of the uh, of the casualties. Uh, there are various uh, assessments, uh, and um, according to to the most reliable of them, uh, we can say that. Uh, uh, more than 100,000 uh, of troops uh, on the Russian side and, and also more than 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian side uh, perished in this war. In this war. Um, the caveat is that there is, there is a more uh, sort of conservative assessment uh, done by the uh, BBC and media and media zone, by BBC Russian service, I mean, and uh, media zone, a Russian media outlet. They count Russian losses uh, from the um, from open sources. Mm-hmm. So this this uh, count is incomplete, definitely. But the the figures they give is uh, are uh, way smaller. They they're talking about first uh, dozens of thousands uh, of uh, Russian troops that uh, definitely perished, and their uh, and their deaths were reported in this or other way on uh, on in the media or in social networks. Uh, but yeah, we we're talking about probably talking uh, about uh, dozens dozens of thousands or uh, or maybe more than hundred thousand people on uh, on either side in this war, and then um, the losses uh, among the civilians uh, are much smaller, uh, which is the unusual feature of this war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're still talking about more than uh, at least more than ten thousand civilians uh, who perished in in the war zone in Ukraine. So that's the human cost so far. But and, and we, it's, it's enormous, and it's it's almost unfathomable. But I, as you speak, I'm wondering whether you know there is a chance that the fact that this war is being fought in the social media age um, with and a raging information war, which I believe you you have documented, um, a, a given the kind of dynamics of it, whether this is a, a, a turning out to be a much more vicious war than um, anything we might have seen had it not occurred in this particular era of digital transformation. Yes, I think uh, I think that's that's very true. There is uh, one aspect uh, created by social media is the gamification of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see on Twitter how many um, uh, how many accounts there are, uh, anonymous accounts and real and um, and accounts uh, run by real uh, real humans. Uh, how many of them treat the war as as an adventure, essentially? Uh, and something that is that is fun, that is fun reporting, that is uh, fun um, uh, participating in, 
Um, so, so there is uh, there is a lot of uh, you know bravado and toxic masculinity uh, in in there. And uh, yes, for from large amounts of people, it creates the impression that uh, um, that this war is is essentially okay. Uh, it's uh, I find it uh, amazing how seamlessly. Uh, has uh, our modern 21st century society um, moved, uh, tr- uh, transited uh, into into this situation of uh, something that uh, becomes that is looking more and more like a world war, not even a regional war, mm. and uh, people continue uh, to live uh, their usual lives in in most countries. And um, many people treat this war as, you know, as a football match. They just, uh, they support one side and uh, they, uh, they are very uh, passionate about rooting for this side. Uh, but uh, the, the human cost of this war uh, just doesn't occur to, to, to many people. This is an abstraction uh, for them, uh, all those soldiers and and civilians uh, who who are dying in in this war. I suppose suppose that accounts also for what we're seeing now, which I find personally very surprising, which is a pro-war left, um, very, very evident on social media. That is uh, a group of people who are opposed to Ukraine negotiating with Russia on anything uh, at all, um, even if the cost of that is significantly high Ukrainian deaths than there needs to be. Has that surprised you at all? Uh, no, it is. It is surprising to me, of course, because uh, um, I'm uh, um, my, my, my school years fall on uh, the Cold War uh, in the Soviet Union and uh, and all my upbringing was, was about basically the uh, a lethal threat of nuclear war and the fear of nuclear war was uh, uh, very genuine on, on both uh, sides of the um, of the divide during during the Cold War. People were afraid in the West. People were definitely afraid in the Soviet Union. Uh, the um, uh, the education and upbringing in the Soviet Union was all about. Uh, uh, fighting for peace and fighting against the war and preventing the the war from uh, happening. Uh, I mean, it, uh, I suppose it looked very differently in the Western propaganda, but that's that's how things were perceived by by us in in, in the Soviet school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, uh, for for people of my uh, generation, both in Russia and in Ukraine, uh, what is what is happening uh, b- between these two countries is uh, is essentially unthinkable. And then uh, now we get all those people who, uh, you know, easily brush away the, uh, the the talk about nuclear war, which I think is uh, is very possible in the in the current situation, and especially if uh, Putin uh, starts uh, losing in Ukraine, or if if uh, if Russia eventually loses uh, Crimea, if if he if he feels cornered. Um, but for surprisingly for me, for for many people, uh, and particularly for people in the in the United States, uh, it, it all seems uh, very abstract. They uh, a they don't believe that uh, uh, nuclear war is uh, 
uh, is uh, possible because why would uh, Putin strike? Uh, he's not suicidal. Uh, and for, for them, for them, it's like, obviously, he's not suicidal. For me, it's not obvious at all. He's uh, an old man who has uh, had uh, everything he could in his life. He uh, he's spoken many times about um, Muammar Gaddafi's uh, uh, terrible death in Libya. He definitely doesn't wish this kind of death to himself. So uh, I can expect anything from this kind of person. Uh, he, he started this war, which felt unthinkable. So uh, why wouldn't he start something that is even even more unthinkable? Uh, but uh, yes, there, there are people who, who say that he, he won't do it. Uh, uh, and just because he won't do it. And then there are people who say, well, if he does it, then it's okay because he will use uh, the tactical uh, nuclear weapons first against Ukraine. And that's okay because this is going to be in Ukraine and U Ukrainians will only get stronger and they will repel uh, uh, the Russian uh, aggression with more fury if that happens. Uh, so I find this... Uh, all this talk, um, well, um, it's uh, it's mm. and and I find it uh, completely unacceptable. It just uh, uh, this is something that is dangerous and should be uh, stopped right away. Nuclear nuclear war is, is a real uh, is a real threat, and it can end up in the um, elimination of the entire humanity. Lena, one, one of the pieces of information that Western media has come to accept and repeat ad nauseum is that the world is against Russia and in support of Ukraine. But it actually turns out that that's not entirely correct. I mean, there are large swathes of Asia, not to mention China. There's the African nations and the South American nations that don't support Ukraine and they don't support the US actions in Ukraine. We're hearing a lot about this now. What's the impact of this, if any? And why are we only hearing about it now, do you think? Uh, I think we're, we're hearing about it now uh, because uh, it uh, sort of occurred to to the uh, to, to Western pundits and to um, politicians and to the American administration, first of all, uh, that, uh, uh, yes, the uh, the bigger world, the, uh, the outer world, the world beyond... Uh, um, uh, rich uh, Western countries uh, is um, is essentially neutral uh, about about this war. Uh, it doesn't support uh, either side, or uh, or it's uh, showing uh, some kind of token support to Ukraine. But uh, essentially, it is it continuing to uh, have um, business as usual with Russia. Uh, and uh, then there are more war inside. Uh, signs for for the American administration, such as uh, uh, joint military drills between Russia and, and uh, South Africa, uh, for example. So, uh, so yes, there is uh, there is a cause for worry, and uh, then uh, of course part of the equation in this uh, war uh, is the uh, grain deal. Uh, in which uh, Russia is allowing um, ships carrying uh, grain from Ukraine, a major one of the world's main uh, grain producers, uh, to to be taken out of Ukraine, out of the port of Odessa, uh, into uh, into the uh, into the greater world, and uh, first of all to to the developing countries. 
Um, so um, countries countries outside the first world they are uh, primarily thinking about their food security because uh, because both both in Ukraine and Russia are uh, major suppliers of uh, cereals uh, uh, for this uh, for these countries. Um, they're looking at uh, energy security as well. Uh, the the impact of this war on um, uh, oil uh, exports uh, from from Russia, on which they are also dependent. Uh, but then also, of course, their uh, attitude uh, uh, to conflict uh, in which uh, the United States uh, is somehow involved is, is quite different to that of the United States uh, itself and of uh, its, its allies in, in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe. Uh, their view on uh, uh, on the Middle Eastern conflict, in particular, on uh, Israel and uh, Palestine, uh, on the war in uh, or on wars in Near East, on on Iraq, on uh, Afghanistan, um, they are they are quite different. Uh, they don't essentially see the United States as uh, as this uh, angelic force that uh, that is uh, uh, liberating the world from evil and uh, uh, that is uh, saving uh, saving civilians. Uh, so that's that's another factor that uh, affects uh, the uh, judgment in this war. Uh, so they are more sensitive to. Uh, all the uh, criticism that appears regarding Ukraine, and uh, and much of this uh, criticism is uh, is substantiated. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, that uh, there are certain sections of um, of of the media, not mainstream media, but um, but non mainstream media, uh, particularly digital in the digital sphere, that have been talking about these issues of who supports, who doesn't, what the cost is for those nations that um, are expected to show a hand of support but haven't yet for Ukraine. Uh, yet it's only beginning now to break through into mainstream media, and I find that really really curious because less than a month ago, I would have said that even mentioning any of this you would be accused as a reporter of whataboutism, you know, which is a, a, a dirty word in journalism. What, what do you think is making the difference now? Well, um, look, I'm, uh, I'm not really detecting uh, much of a difference. I'm, I'm seeing uh, a more uh, op-eds and uh, analysis in, uh, in the mainstream American media um, which uh, kind of broadens the uh, horizon on on this war or, and and on Ukraine, uh, but uh, fundamental historical issues uh, such as the um, Bucharest uh, summit on NATO of NATO um, back uh, fifteen years ago, in which uh, it was decided that uh, Ukraine will pursue. Uh, NATO membership. Uh, um, this is um, this is being discussed on Twitter. All these circumstances regarding it that uh, uh, that it was a compromise that the Americans were pushing for Ukraine to become a, a full blown uh, candidate uh, mm -hmm. for NATO, and uh, France and Germany were against it. And uh, then they came to a kind of uh, compromise that. Uh, 
uh, didn't didn't really suit uh, anybody. Uh, but uh, what we can say for sure that uh, that decision uh, did uh, trigger uh, the uh, the Kremlin, and I guess uh, in uh, in the in the Kremlin's uh, calculation, uh, one important issue was that. Uh, um, NATO membership was an extremely unpopular subject in in Ukraine itself at that time. If you look at the polls uh, back back in 2006, 2007, uh, then uh, the the support of NATO membership in Ukraine would be uh, anything between 10 and 20 uh, percent. Uh, but nevertheless, the uh, the government of uh, President Yushchenko, which was uh, losing power at the time uh, was extremely corrupt and extremely unpopular. Um, it, it decided to make this uh, PR coup by um, by um, paving the way for Ukraine to to enter uh, to enter NATO. Uh, so again, uh, the um, the lobbyist groups that are uh, promoting conflict with Russia. Uh, they uh, they are promoting the narrative of uh, uh, NATO not being a part of the story. That uh, what is really happening is just that uh, Russia has these uh, imperial ambitions uh, that it wants to expand and expand and expand. And if you don't stop them in Ukraine, then they will attack uh, uh, Finland and Baltic countries and um, Germany and so will go all the way to the British Isles. Um, but uh, uh, if you if you look at, at the Russian discourse, it's 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 not quite like that. There is there is an imperialist streak that is only really becoming uh, visible or important now. But uh, back then, it was definitely uh, primarily about uh, NATO and about the very uh, genuine fear in in Russia. That is. Uh, that has been manipulated by Putin. That has been manipulated by um, by this um, uh, by this government, which uh, uh, takes a lot uh, from far right uh, um, parties and organizations in the West, and its its rhetoric is uh, polarizing, and it's it's about uh, uh, picturing Russia as a besieged uh, fortress. Uh, but in this uh, in these rhetorics, uh, the the most important issue was uh, was NATO. Really, it was uh, it was the the West uh, approaching Russian borders and installing bases and uh, uh, aiming to uh, to destroy Russia. And this is uh, now turning into a self fulfilling prophecy because now we are uh, seeing people. Like Ben Hodges, the former American commander uh, of all American troops in in Europe, uh, saying that yes, Russia will fall apart, and it it sounds from uh, there is there is you know excitement in his uh, in his current prophecy. Uh, so some people, particularly in Eastern Europe, they do talk that, uh, about uh, uh, dismantling Russia as as the goal of the of the current world of the current war, and uh, and that of course uh, the the main beneficiary of all of this is is Putin. We're talking about beneficiaries of this conflict. Then uh, I would rank them in the way that uh, number one beneficiary is Putin because. Uh, he has completely destroyed the opposition, uh, and uh, thanks to this war, the war allowed him to do it. 
uh, and uh, his strength and his uh, grip and power. There's uh, um, he, he prolonged his rule for for as long as this uh, conflict uh, continues. And then the the other beneficiaries, uh, far right uh, governments and politicians in Eastern Europe, particularly the Polish government, uh, that's uh, that's sticking to power only thanks to this conflict. And, and then, of course, all those lobbyist groups uh, in the West that represent the military-industrial complex. It, it's certainly a really frightening moment in time, that's for sure. Um, Leonard, I have one uh, final question for you, if you might answer for me briefly, and that is concerning China, because it has, of course, entered the game with offers to negotiate peace. But the tone of Western reporting, I'm interested to hear your views on. Do you think that that has been um, a sceptical tone of reporting or do you think it's been a, a perfectly reasonable one? Um, well, I'm, I'm not a China specialist, and uh, um, I, I, I'm in no position to judge as to how bellicose is uh, China itself. I'm, I'm very much focused on on the Western media and uh, on on the Western discourse, and, and I'm a part of it myself. Um, so what I'm seeing. Uh, looks to me as as an appetite uh, in in some circles for uh, for a conflict with China, uh, and uh, um, and at the same at the same time there is there is appetite uh, for 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 this conflict with uh, with Russia. Um, one I think a litmus test is that uh, there is very little talk about trying to. Uh, to get Russia on on our on the Western side in the conflict in the brewing conflict with uh, China, um, somehow it is okay for uh, for the people that are pushing for conflict in with with both countries. It is okay for them to uh, to be pushing Russia away uh, and and towards China. Although of course. Uh, the logical outcome of it is that uh, Russia becomes uh, an ally with China and uh, uh, Russia's nuclear arsenal, which can, uh, as you know, destroy humanity and destroy the Western world, uh, it will essentially be be part of this uh, alliance that includes China uh, eventually. And um, uh, again, from from the logical point of view, uh, you you would you think that uh, uh, you need to uh, to Try and get Russia uh, on on your side, either through compromise or, or through the change of uh, government in Russia uh, for for a more uh, pro-Western government as as a result of a democratic movement. But again, uh, all those uh, lobbyist groups, for some reason, they're involved in bashing Russian opposition, in in bashing Navalny, um, and bashing anything that's related to Russia, including the anti-Putin forces, very much so. Why is that happening? Uh, uh, I don't know. There is a lot of uh, um, irrationality in uh, in uh, in the discourse, and there is there is no good analysis of this discourse that is that is going on in 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 Western media uh, and uh, in in the Western general. Okay, Leonis, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very, very much for your time and for the very, very thoughtful and interesting comments that you've made. And uh, hopefully Fourth Estate will talk to you again very soon. Oh, thank you very much for having me. 
And thanks to you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockwell. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening. <laughs>